Well, we come this morning after something of a long break back to the book of Romans. You remember that we have seen these major themes thus far, the universal need, the forgiving grace, the transforming grace, the international defense of the gospel. And as we have come to Romans 12 and verse 1, there was a major hinge, a major change that focuses now on application or the life-changing relevance of the gospel. If we glance at this section, we find something of the Christian's attitude to God, the Christian's attitude to other Christians, attitude to non-Christians, civil rulers, people in general, living in the light and on love and liberty. Remember what we saw in Romans 12 and verse 1, where the mercies of God motivate us so that we give our bodies as a living sacrifice and we give our minds to be transformed by Holy Spirit renewal. The body as a living sacrifice, the mind transformed, is going to mean, first of all, humility that is seen and developed in the context of the church. We remember that pride is like bad breath. How serious are we to take it? How are we to be um, thinking about ourselves in light of the body? Well, verse 3 uh, with an emphasis on Paul's wording there, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think of yourself with sound thinking. Paul argues for our humility because of the diversity of function in the body, the profound unity within the body, and the source of those gifts. They come from God, so we can't be proud even of the gifts that God gives to us. A second area that is going to be promoted with our mind being transformed is that we move from being selfish individuals to manifesting a self-denying love that is lived out in the context of the church. We find this underscored in verse 9, where three of the four words uh, in the Greek language that uh, are found in all of the New Testament are all three found in these two verses. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love with a brotherly love, storge with a family type of commitment, one another with a brotherly affection. Perhaps we can say that all the rest of this chapter, verse 11 on to verse 21, is an unfolding of what this principled love looks like. It's genuine, it's righteous, it's affectionate, it's uh, righteous. Now as we come to verses 11, 12, and 13, you'll notice that we have this string of imperatives. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And it was not uncommon in the first century for their philosophers, for their moral writers, to when they are giving something of the ethic to their hearers, 
that they would simply go through and give a string of commands, but a string of commands that are not logically connected to one another. And some suggest that that is what Paul is doing here, that there's no connection in these various exhortations. I am of the school that there is something of a connection, that verse 11 fits together. We are to serve the Lord as we do so. We're not to be slothful, but rather we are to be servant. Servant, a fervent in spirits. Take the S off of spirit and throw it back there to fervent, right? Verse 12, staying the course against the world where we rejoice in hope, we are patient in tribulation because we are constant in prayer, and then sensitivity to the brothers, we contribute to their needs physically and socially. Well, with that bit of introduction, let's uh, come now uh, to the text itself, to the handout sheet if you care to use it. Roman numeral one, serving the brothers and sisters, serving the brothers and sisters. Notice, first of all, A, the diligence in our brotherly love. Uh, Paul is going to say there in verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Let me give you something of what Paul's logic is. In verse 9 and 10, it is love the people of God. At the end of verse 11, he is highlighting serve the Lord. We serve the Lord as we serve one another. And as we do that serving, we do so in zeal. So come back with me now to Romans 12 and verse 11. We see something of this zeal as regards diligence, as regards zeal, not slow. There can be a slowness in our work. When we are slow to do something, we can procrastinate. If there's something that we don't like to do, we may take that thing that we don't like and just leave it there. We just try to ignore it. And in a similar way, we are so accustomed, what makes me feel good? What is that which gives me a sense of significance? And we are more drawn to that than we are of saying, how can I minister to this one or the other? This self-denying love. And so this first exhortation is negative. Realize something of that bent that we have within ourselves to be selfish, even though we are Christians, and then set up safeguards against that. Or as Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 9, let us not grow weary of well-doing or weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I've slightly adapted these words from Calvin to bring them uh, to be a little more relevant 500 years later. 
This precept is given to us not only because a Christian life ought to be an active life, but because love guides us to overlook our own benefit and to spend our labors on behalf of our brothers and sisters. In a word, we ought in many things to forget ourselves, for except we be in earnest and diligently strive to shake off all sloth, we shall never be rightly prepared for the service of the body of Christ. Agape love, what is it? Desiring and doing the very best for another person in the name of Christ. We find this theme in Ephesians 4. The whole body is joined together, it says in verse 16, and makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And where there is a congregation of those who are true believers and they are committed to loving the Lord and committed to loving one another, it is a beautiful thing. Someone is going to be weeping and there is a response of weeping with them. Someone is delighting and there is a rejoicing that takes place with that person. But loving others in a self-denying way, though we need to talk ourselves into it from time to time, it is not a burden to the child of God. Listen to the words of this hymn that we'll sing in closing. Blessed to be a blessing. Privileged to care. Challenged by the need apparently everywhere. Where mankind is wanting, lacking, fill the vacant place, be the means through which the Lord reveals his grace. We are privileged to care in the sense that God has given to us something of his agape love. In the same way that he looked on the sinful mass of the world and gave his only begotten son, So if we have this capacity to look out beyond ourselves and say, here is need, how may I respond to that? That is a great privilege. We are more blessed to be a blessing. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And sometimes we say in our kind, yeah, but I kind of like receiving. But the ability to to see that God is working in us, that God is changing my natively selfish heart so that I am concerned about others, that I am privileged to care because God is at work. What a wonderful thing. The Spirit of God regenerates us, transforms us, by this renewal of our mind so that we move increasingly from being concerned about ourselves to being concerned about others. At least in your mind's eye, take a glance around the room. Is there someone in this room that you truly care about? Someone that you're bothered when they are bothered. You are bothered when they are going through trouble. Are you bothered enough 
to know of their trouble and then pray for them in the midst of that trouble. Uh, To send a brief text, to make a call, to bring a meal. But but I'm so busy. I, I have all these concerns myself. And there we have it, don't we? I have all these things of myself. Now, there are legitimate things that we have to take care of, but increasingly, Paul is calling us out saying, listen, if you've been justified, if you've been sanctified, if you've seen the gospel reach out to the ends of the earth and the gospel has come to you, seeing these mercies of God, let's be transformed in our minds. And what does that mean? It means increasingly that we move away from being focused on ourselves to being focused on the people of God. Diligence. When it comes to serving the Lord by serving others, let us have zeal and not be slothful. Secondly, B, the fervency in our brotherly love. The middle part of verse 11, be fervent in spirit. And it's a colorful word. It means to boil or to seethe, to be boiling in your spirit. It's illustrated for us in the life of Apollos, Acts 18, 24, and 25. Uh, Apollos was a man who lived down at Alexandria. That's in Egypt. And when we meet him, He is at Ephesus, on the other side of the Mediterranean. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and talked accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. There was a fire burning in Apollos. And he traveled from the south side of the Mediterranean Sea up to the north, eastern part of it, to be preaching the gospel. There was a fire there. A man's spirit must move him. And I think it helps us to think of boiling or seething, to think of the old steam locomotive. The wood goes in the firebox. The coal goes in the firebox. And eventually, when that thing heats up, there is the steam that is released and it chugs off uh, on its path. And so it is in the child of God. There is something of heat within us that is known as fervency and it drives us, it pushes us to be serving the Lord by serving one another. And someone might say, well, if God the Spirit must work in us this seething, this boiling, this fervency, then why is Paul laying it on us? In the words of another Though this boiling fervency be the gift of God, it is yet a duty enjoined on the faithful so that they will shake off sloth and they will cherish the flame kindled by heaven. 
We need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit working in us. For often it happens that the Spirit is suppressed and extinguished through our fault. There is the very real danger that that remaining selfishness in us will rise up. And the Spirit will prompt us to see this one, to see that one, to see the need, and instead of cooperating with the Spirit of God, we will suppress it. We will simply look another way. So that need is not there before us. I find that it is often when I am praying down through the people of God that the needs of those particular people that I'm praying for that day come before me. I guess it's only natural, isn't it? What should I pray for this individual? Well, there's this need. And then all of a sudden, it's not only a need that is there that you want to bring before God, but it may prompt some sort of response for us. But it's in prayer that we will most likely look on our brothers and sisters more as God looks on them and sees their need and wants those needs to be met. A, diligence. B, fervency. Now thirdly, see the heavenly goal in our brotherly love. The last part of verse 11, serve the Lord. Our word here for serve is the common word for slave. And personally, I wish that our English versions would keep the word for slave and simply put that in our text, doulos. So serve the Lord slaving for the Lord. And how can it be, how do I get this, that by serving the Lord, I'm saying you're to serve one another in the body of Christ? Well, verse 9 and 10, self-denying love. That means we serve them. How do you serve the Lord by serving one another? Well, listen to two passages. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Now she's doing it to this human, but she's looking on to the master of them both. Or even more plainly, Ephesians 6 and verse 5, bondservants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Here's the individual, the slave is ministering to his earthly master, but he's looking right through the earthly master and on to the master who is in heaven, King Jesus. Now, our English understanding of slaving, we need to qualify that just a moment. One of you ladies might tell me that, well, how's your week gone? 
while I was slaving in the kitchen. And by slaving in the kitchen, I don't think that you mean that there's anyone with a whip that is cracking it. It's just that you're working very hard, working very diligently, almost like a slave. But this sense of slaving for the Lord, being enslaved to the Lord, is not, well, it's like you're a slave, but it is that you are a slave. That there is this sense here, even as Paul uses it in Romans 1, where he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. He is the master, and whatever he wants is what I'm going to do. And here I am, one who is enslaved to Jesus Christ in my lowly service to the people of God. Now, why are we directed to be enslaved to Jesus in our love to our brothers and sisters. Well, one is written, many are diligent enough, some have fanatical zeal, many glow and literally boil over in their spirit, but so much of the busy effort and the steam powering the action is not at all the work that the Lord Jesus once done. Maybe I can illustrate. You ask someone how they're feeling when you see them. So how was your week? How are you? And the response comes back, well, I'm really down. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that you're really down. Let me, here, take my credit card, and I want you to go to Atlantic City, and I want, you are authorized to gamble up to $5,000. I just want you to forget all of your troubles. Go have a wonderful time, and then I'll see you next week. Serving the Lord, enslaved to the Lord. And so whatever follows after, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, it needs to be the kind of prescription that the Lord Jesus would give himself. That's not a long-term solution. I can't do that too many times. In fact, I've not done it once. Remember how Romans 12 begins. It is by the renewing of your mind, the transforming of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I am serving the people of God as I am serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of importance is that as slaves, we take our direction from Jesus. We don't simply come to him and say, well, Jesus, this is what I thought would be a good thing to do in this situation. Now there's enough given to us in Scripture that we may know. And how can we practically serve the Lord Jesus by serving one another? Well, I think of the Apostle Paul. There's a time when he's writing to the Thessalonians, and he says, I was there with you as a nursing mother. And because of that, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And there's something that a mother is going to do. But in the next verses, Paul says, I was there as a father with his children. And sometimes as a father, we exhorted. Other times we encouraged. And sometimes we charged. So based on the need, the child at any one particular point, it may be more of a word of comfort. And maybe for that person that is down, we come back to the basics of the gospel. And we say, you remember how back earlier in the book of Romans, we saw how foundational justification is. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Let's think about it. Let's talk about that objective peace with God. It's not based on what you have done. It's certainly not based on your feelings, whether you're up or whether you're down. Here is this bedrock of our justification where the empty hands of our faith come out and embrace what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there may be you're being like the dad that is bringing a word of comfort. And yet, there is a passage like Proverbs 27 and verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I love you, I love you, oh, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, there's nothing wrong with you, everything is exactly perfect, you are the epitome of perfection. I don't think any of us would fall for that. I hope we wouldn't. We, we, the, 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 the wound of the loving friend is going to do us far more good than the empty, deceitful kisses, serving the brothers and sisters. Roman numeral two, staying the course against the world. Romans 12 and verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. How do these three, how does this triplet of exhortation fit together? Hope, looks out to the certain expectation of future blessing. Tribulation embraces the reality there is pain right now. And because there's pain right now, I need to look out in hope for what is coming with the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And prayer, prayer is where I go into my closet and I shut out the world and in prayer, I bring heaven near. And in prayer, God draws near and pulls me up to himself so I sense his presence. Well, first of all, A, our rejoicing in hope. Rejoice in hope. Certain expectation of future blessing. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is going to judge the world in righteousness, and I am going to be glorified. 
And you see, it's very easy for us to get bogged down with the world and all of the thought and concepts of the world. The worldling works his 50, 60 hours, and then he goes home. He's got to get his groceries. He's got to do these things. And I'm stuck in the same sort of routine. No, don't be conformed to the thinking of the world. As a Christian, let hope come into your world. And let that hope come so powerfully into your world that it not only preserves your sanity, good, I've got, I've got enough hope that keeps me sane. Is that what Paul is saying that our service to the brothers and sisters would be? No. It's not having enough hope to be sane, but having enough hope so that we are rejoicing in the midst of the affliction. Rejoicing in hope, knowing that this affliction is going to change. I think it's wonderful that we can look into the scriptures and we can find examples of this kind of faith, examples of this kind of hope, a certain expectation of future blessing. We all know about Job. We know about all of his troubles. We know how his friends came and said, there, there's some, some dark hidden secret, Job, that you haven't confessed yet. Come out with it. Let's have it. Because obviously this is why God has brought this crisis on you. And let's Dip into Job 19 and verse 20. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? And then just verses down, two verses later, 1925. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself. Not my descendants, I am going to see. My eyes shall behold and not another. What does that do for to see Job in all of his trouble, and yet Job can have this measure of New Testament hope that he is looking to a time when his Redeemer is going to be on the earth. He's looking forward to a time when his body's been destroyed, and yet he's got new flesh, and his eyes are looking on his Redeemer. It's encouraging to us. Paul calls us to an unwavering faith in God, rejoicing in hope, such a certain expectation of future blessing that it impacts me now. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1, the very next verse. Ignore the chapter break. 
For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I'm here, I'm now, I've got all of the afflictions that are on my mind in 2 Corinthians, and yet I am counting all of the afflictions of this present world as momentary light affliction, and there is this eternal weight of glory. But you know, it's not just Paul and Job that encourage us, and this is the body life. This is the one another. God was not only working in past ages, but God is working now. And when I come into the midst of the body of Christ, and I know that there is this significant trial that this one is going through, and yet there is bubbling up out of that individual in horrible affliction that I don't want to be in, I see a Job-like faith. I see a Pauline looking out to the future momentary light affliction and an eternal weight of glory. Paul says this happens to common believers. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to me from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Rejoicing in hope. And if you will rejoice in hope, it will minister to your brothers and sister in a way that Job's perseverance and Paul's exemplary faith ministers to us. Secondly, B, our persevering in affliction. Our persevering in affliction. Be patient in tribulation. I like the plainer word in the New American Standard, persevering. In tribulation, it, it brings over that stronger, more graphic word. But in the same way as we have in Romans 5, we've got these two words here, suffering and endurance, patience and tribulation. There it was in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance and here it is, you're going to have affliction, you're going to have tribulation, and while you are in it, be persevering. you got to hang on. Jesus was very plain about the trials we would face. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Paul is really prolific in sharing about his own affliction. And it, and it wasn't a, look at my trouble, forget your stuff. That's peanuts compared to mine. 
But what Paul is doing in sharing his affliction, I'm looking particularly at 2 Corinthians, where he says, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we have received the sentence of death. We're so pressed down, we thought we were going to die. 2 Corinthians 2, I wrote to you out of much affliction, anguish of heart, and with many tears. Strong leaders are not supposed to cry. Well, that one did. And there were real tears. But Paul also prepared believers for that persecution. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate me from the love of God? Shall this or the other? It's not me, is it? Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. You may face any of these and all of them. But Christ's love still grips you. But Paul shows us how to embrace these afflictions and to bring the future near in hope. And time is getting away from me. You can look more detail at 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 through 10. But having listed out his afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots and labors and sleepless nights and hunger, he then moves on to say in verse 9, as dying, and behold, we live. And what does he mean by that? I'm alive now, and I'm always going to be alive. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I'm always rejoicing because I'm bringing the future right in front of my eyes. As poor, yet many, making many rich. I don't have much in this world. I've got to make tents to make ends meet. But while I'm doing this, I'm making many to be eternally rich. As having nothing, yes, yet possessing everything. Paul is saying... In my afflictions, I put one foot in one world and I put the other foot in the other world. All of the affliction where I don't have a thing. But I keep my other foot in the realm in which I possess all that Christ can see from his throne of glory. Rejoice in hope, persevering in affliction. Thirdly, see our devotion in our prayers. 
devoted to prayer, constant in prayer, to stick close by something, attach yourself to it, to persist in something. And I want us to think of how Paul dealt with some of his afflictions. And one of those is 2 Corinthians 12, where he tells us that he was sent this thorn in the flesh to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited. And what does he say next? Three times, what's next? Three times I sought the Lord. Three times I prayed. In the midst of affliction, he prays, and by that prayer, he's connected to his future. And that whole section ends, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, I am strong. When I am feeling the pain of this world, I am really strong because I learned to depend on my other foot being in the world to come. We have it in Jerusalem's corporate prayer, not only individual prayer. Devoted to prayer, constant in prayer, sometimes public, sometimes private. John and Peter have healed the lame man. They've been called in in Acts chapter 4 to give some sort of explanation. And they, and they want to get this preaching to be done with, quit this stuff. And when they come back and share, this is what they told us. They told us we got to shut up. But we told them that we got to listen to God more than to man. And then we prayed. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. Many of them were praying. But it was one message. It was one heart of the congregation going to God. And skipping over verses of that wonderful prayer coming down. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, jumping ahead to the conclusion right after the prayer. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I don't think that's what the unbelieving rulers wanted. Now there's more of them filled with the Holy Spirit who are preaching the Word of God with boldness. Prayer brings us near to God. And when we're looking at this, the latter part of verse 12, in the context of the people of God, and I'm serving the people of God, and I am showing love to the people of God, when was the last time that you said to a friend, how can I pray for you? Maybe one step higher. Would you like me to pray for you over this matter right now? Shouldn't that be something that we're all comfortable with? 
It's like I want to take it. All of you who would be in favor of your friends and brethren asking you if you would like to pray. Okay, so we'd all raise our hand. So don't think somebody's going to get mad at you if you. Let's pray right now. Being constant in prayer is one of the ways that you manifest a self denying love. You're in this situation. I need prayer. Will you pray for me? Either in person. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We have not ceased to pray for you. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Brothers, pray for us. We show love for one another by remembering one another in our corporate meetings and remembering one another in our private times of meeting with our God in heaven, serving the brothers and sisters, staying the course, and now thirdly, sensitivity to the needs of the brothers and sisters, contributing to their physical needs. They are saints. They are true believers. If you're a believer, you're a saint. You will have holiness worked into you. Needs tells us there's a great economic range in the people of God. Some have the need, and some have the wherewithal to meet that need. Contribute is our word for fellowship or shared life together. And if we're going to share life together in your need, then it implies that I'm going to do something about your physical need. If you see a close family member in financial distress, you will feel a sense of responsibility to help them out financially. And we love in self-denying love. We have a brotherly love for one another with a family commitment kind of love as believers. Proverbs 3.27 Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Oh, the book of Proverbs. Such wisdom, all packed into one little statement. Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Thirdly, or secondly, B, physical. Contributing to the physical need. Now contributing to the social needs. And this hospitality, this love of strangers back in the first century, it was much more essential. It was life and death important. If you're the Apostle Paul and you're running to escape those who want to kill you for having preached in the last town, then me bringing you into my home helps, it's life and death. When you as believers get kicked out of Rome because you're Jewish, but you're still Jews, you're believers, and you're, you are exiles, you're going to need a place. Our culture is different. New Testament times there was this great need 
and one is written, pagans observing Christians said that although they had never seen each other, they treated one another as blood brothers, seeking to show hospitality. It's a play on words. It means to pursue hospitality. It's the word for persecution that's used in the very next verse of those who are being pursued, those who are being persecuted. When that buck is running away from you with your arrow in it, you are going to be pursuing it because you want that rack and you want that meat. That's our word. It can be used for the hunt. It can be used for the hunt for Christians to persecute them. And he's saying, and this is what he's saying, you need to pursue after hospitality, love of the stranger, meeting their needs in that way, because there may well be a day when you are going to be persecuted, and when you're persecuted, you will want your brothers and sisters to be pursuing hospitality with you. Well, it certainly tells us that we shouldn't do it in a grudging manner after somebody embarrasses us and puts us on the spot. We don't have the same need for this kind of hospitality, but there is tremendous good that happens in the home. There's tremendous good that happens across a table. It's not the spread table but the open door. If you get it in your mind, you've got to have the spread table, then you won't open your door as much because you don't always have the spread table. How can a house become a kingdom-useful house? Well, greet also the church that was in their house. It's a place of evangelism in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ Jesus is that Christ is Jesus it's a quiet place to speak it's where you can invite someone in who's come to church but you don't even know where they are and to give opportunity of talking that leads to evangelism it's a place for fellowship it's a place for restoration did you know Jesus engaged in hospitality? He did, John 21, and he used it as his rebuke and restoration of Peter, feed my sheep. He had an open door, didn't have much of a spread table, but there was fish that was cooking for the breakfast. So there it is. Your open door can be a great help to the various means of grace, informal fellowship and prayer over a spread feast or over tea and coffee or and a cookie. Bible studies in the home, prayer meetings in the home, young people attending our youth retreat. Your open door can be a great means of communicating to someone, I value you. And I want to know you are valuable 
in the sight of God. Blessed to be a blessing. Privileged to care. God has worked in the hearts of Christians to make us to be more like himself. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, then I hope that you know as an unbeliever something of the selfishness of your own heart. And I believe that as you look in and see that selfishness and see how you worship yourself instead of the God of heaven, that you know that you can't get there on your own. That's okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Come with Paul so that you can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would take our looking at this string of eight exhortations that we may see something of their connectedness. At least we see their connection back to our agape love of verse 9. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in this matter of being a body of believers of being a church that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would be concerned as your slaves, Lord Jesus, to do your will in your church. And we pray, our God, that for any who are not believers, that you would help them to see that they don't need to work their way to heaven, but they simply need to believe their way to heaven, to believe that their sins will be loaded on Jesus Christ and that his perfect righteousness will be loaded to them. Bring such to yourself. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.